Welcome to Sensemaking. I'm Carla Joy Treadway. I'm an integrated life and business coach, the creator of The Sovereign, and a seasoned wellness practitioner. I believe in investigating the truth. I mean the whole truth. And I bring on sensemakers of all kinds who are brave enough to poke holes in commonly accepted narratives. The world is wild, my friends. And with censorship, cancel culture, and pretend uniformity of opinion, we need more sensemakers who are willing to be who they authentically are, bringing their real-life stories and evidence to the table. Sensemaking will challenge how you feel about a variety of topics from health, politics, spirituality, culture, and more. I want to free you from thinking that you have to go along with the narratives. But mostly, I hope you find yourself in the stories we share here, sparking the idea that, hey, I'm not so alone in my thinking, after all. Welcome to the show. Today I am interviewing Drew Weatherhead from the Social Disorder Podcast. If you guys aren't already listening to Drew's show, you're definitely going to want to subscribe and listen um, to what he's got going on over there. He has been streaming podcasts steady ever since, uh, you know, the world fell apart. <laughs> Drew is an incredible wealth of knowledge. He's he's one of those guys that can just absorb large amounts of data, information, historical facts. Um, you're never going to catch him off guard. Um, it's it's quite wild, actually. Uh, when we recorded this podcast too, uh, Drew is on the road with his family, something I actually didn't know about him. Uh, he has been uh, steadily traveling with his family and his uh, rig all across the United States, going back and forth to Canada, all across the USA. So when we're doing the podcast, he is literally podcasting from the front of his setup. So he's in the truck, family's in the back. Uh, so he is using Starlink for uh, his podcast. So keep in mind there there might be the odd blip here or there, which I've been pretty careful to edit out. But if you do notice a little blip in sound, um, that's why. Um, and also how awesome, especially with all these creeping dystopian rules, I love seeing that Drew is carving his own way through all of this. He's, he's getting around all the rules. He's making sure he can still podcast no matter, no matter what. Um, so it's actually something that I really love to see here. Anything is possible guys. Before we get into the show here, I'm just going to get into um, our sponsors. Uh, this episode is brought to you by the Sovereign CEO. This is my private coaching container for awake coaches, healers, and freedom-minded entrepreneurs. Guys, inside this container, I jam-pack it with value because I want as many awake rad humans to win right now. I coach weekly in this container. Um, we focus on your mindset, on your business. Each and every month, we do a two to three hour content creation session. I give you serious strategy sessions, next level awake experts, and a 24 uh, seven community of rad awake humans, just like you. Uh, this is the community where you need to be 
if you're ready to get your focus off of the news and onto your new way forward. Uh, included in my membership is a eight-week foundational self-mastery program. So you go from chaos, confusion, lack of motivation to your crystal clear calling. And then I help you turn that into a radical success. Uh, you can find the link in the bio if you want to get started. Uh, no commitment is necessary. You can drop in and out as you like. Uh, you're going to really love the humans inside, guys. I, I guarantee you that. Um, tons of value again. Once again, it's making master level coaching for your life and business super accessible. And the resources inside, guys, are are just beyond what what the membership price is. So if you're looking for um, a good community right now, and if you're looking for ways to improve your situation financially or otherwise, um, check it out. This is the community for you. Um, I'm also a proud member of the wellness company. They have a team of doctors and pharmacists that are super awake. We're talking about Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Harvey Reich, Dr. Paul Alexander, and so many more. Uh, the wellness company has a massive vision for transforming healthcare. They unapologetically stand up for medical freedom and the right to affordable healthcare. They're actually here to build a new healthcare system that earns people's trust governed and operated with transparency and they offer like the highest quality practitioners who also align at their core fundamental beliefs you know they want to put people first i take a few products but my favorite hands down is spike support because vaccinated or not spike protein is something that has made its way into your body causing a variety of potential long-term issues spike support formula is the only product that contains natokinase and dandelion root ingredients researched for their effectiveness taking spike support daily helps give your body the natural immune support it needs to protect yourself and your family against viruses injections, shedding, and more. Check the show notes here if you guys want to get your hands on some uh, yourself, um, or if maybe you want to connect with an awake doctor or pharmacist, they can do that for you too. So definitely proud to be a part of this team. Uh, the, the company is growing every single day. Um, and again, it's not just about products, guys. They are here to fix our very broken healthcare system in Canada to provide some more options for you all. So love what they're doing over at the wellness company. Okay, my friends with that, let's get into the show uh, with me and Mr. Drew Weatherhead. Okay, everyone, welcome to the show. I have with me tonight, Drew Weatherhead. Drew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Carla. It's good to be here. I almost called you Drew Jitsu. It's what I always want to refer to you as after a couple of years of listening to the podcast, pretty steady. So if you guys don't know Drew, he's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. Um, he's a digital nomad due to his business being closed because of COVID. Uh, he's the host of the Social Disorder podcast and the author of Conscious Reality and Purpose. Um, Drew, I've been listening to your podcast 
since the beginning. Um, I like that is it's conversational. You're not uh, afraid to touch on any of the big topics, but you're not out there just ranting. You are very well researched on everything that you put out there. And uh, like many people, it it's really reassuring when you're listening to a show like yours that there is someone out there that sees what you see and is providing a space really just just to talk about it. Yeah, well, thanks. First of all, that is broadly why I started doing the podcast that I'm doing when I started doing it was because there was no space being held open. In fact, it was being held shut. So I was just tired of that dynamic, certainly within Canada, where, I mean, anybody, I, I imagine most of your listeners are Canadian. They'll remember that it was not just faux pas to be speaking like that nobody basically could at that point without risking all sorts of different things, not the least of which is their income, you know, their families, um, uh, business sometimes, you know, like there was points because I started to give you a little bit of a, a backstory on myself and s sort of how I led myself to the podcast that I'm doing now with social disorder. Um, I was not just a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, but I was a small business owner. I had my own gym. I was a you know sole proprietor that was working very hard for about a year and a half before COVID started. And anybody who's had a small business or had to go through that knows that usually within the first 12 to 16 months, you're just struggling to get into the black. It's a very hard, um, dangerous financially grind to get to the point that you're actually making some profit. And that I was just starting to come out of that process when March of 2020 hit. And I was told that I need to shut down my gym for two weeks to flatten the curve of this novel coronavirus that apparently came over from China and was after my grandma. So I needed to do the safe thing. And look, we are as uh, athletes in jujitsu, which for people who don't know is a martial arts that is strictly grappling. So it's like wrestling, but with submission holds. Um, you can't do that socially distanced. So as far as Canada and the uh, public health were concerned, it was absolutely faux pas. It was uh, you know, not allowed in any way, shape or form until we got this thing under control. But don't worry, we're going to get this thing under control. And, and I played that game with them on and off, back and forth from two weeks to four weeks to six weeks to eight weeks to three months and over and over for the better part of about 17 months where there would be uh, you'd be open for summer, closed for fall. Um, and it's it was just never ending. It was this indefinite thing that you would feel like you had a bit of breathing space and then they shut you down indefinitely again and you would miss Christmas and you would miss Easter and you'd be wondering like, what is going on? Like this two weeks never seems to end. And it got to the point around May of, of uh, 2021 where I just couldn't sustain it anymore. I had pulled every favor every loan every trick in the book I could to try to keep this business afloat because part of the trick that they don't tell you about is you're not allowed to make money while you're doing this but you still have to make money while you're doing this or else you know your bills don't go away and I had to sort of magic hat anywhere from like eight to ten thousand dollars out of thin air every month when I wasn't allowed to work <laughs> it's not a very easy thing to do it, it was really just a never-ending scenario and maybe like if it was just relying on my savings, I could have done that for a few months. But then once that ran dry, it was like, what do we do? And there was no end to it. I, I, the world didn't make sense to me anymore. Um, and at that point, uh, my wife sort of sat me down in uh, May of 21. And she said, 
I appreciate what you're doing, but we need to actually look at this pragmatically because I know that you're the type of person that you're going to go out on your shield on this one. And that's as, as laudable as that is, we have a family to support and we need to pull the plug if we need to pull the plug for the sake of them. And I'm like, yeah, that's, it, it was good that we had that conversation. It was a hard conversation, but it was truth because I, I knew no other way than just continue grinding. And I had had my nose to the grindstone for over a year at that point, trying to make something impossible happen. And so I didn't know any other way. And I had to be broken of my routine to, to recognize the greater picture. And so what we ended up doing was closing that business. It was the last month that it was alive. Um, I ended up having to sell my house, a single income provider for difficult choice to make. And, um, we, we sold our house and made the decision to put what money we had left into a travel trailer, which we've, we've never owned any of that type of recreational vehicle in our life before. And I just put my whole family into it, um, learned how to do it the first day that we bought it. And that's been our story. That's been, we've been living on the road for the last two and a half years. We're actually presently on podcasting from down in Indianapolis, Indiana, because uh, we're on our, our seasonal trek right now from Winterland, Canada, down to the southern parts of the States where we can actually survive the winter because you just can't do that in a travel trailer in Canada. Um, and there's a lot that could be said about the difficulty of doing that through the years of 2021 and 2022 as an unvaccinated person. Basically impossible, but you know where there's a will, there's a way, and uh, ingenuity is birthed from... from uh, you know, no other options. It, we were between a rock and a hard place and had to find our way through. But, you know, it's it's led to things like the podcast that I'm doing now, where in 2022, I decided to start speaking out. And to be honest, it was way too late at that point. I wish I had done it in 2020, where I kept my mouth shut while my business starved to death. And then I, <laughs> I wish I did it in 2021, when my sister got paralyzed from her vaccine that she took. And it took me almost a year after that point, like 10 months after that point, I was finally like, what more needs to happen? Like everything, as far as my semblance online was concerned, is all jujitsu based. I don't even have a jujitsu gym anymore. And I'm supposed to talk about a martial art when the world is like going to hell and nothing makes sense. And I I can talk about anything I want online. I had a jujitsu podcast at the time. And as long as I didn't talk about the elephant in the room, you know, talk about anything but the thing. And meanwhile, everybody knows that that elephant is there because they're, they've are they been dealing with it in their own way the whole time too. So it felt like extremely insincere and it was really an assault on reality that I was just sick of, of putting up with at that point. And I came out with the first episode that I did literally a day before the invocation of the Emergencies Act where I'll episode and it was titled The Elephant in the Room. And I just, I went off for about an hour about all the things I wasn't allowed to say. And it was so cathartic and so releasing that I knew that this was something I had to continue. And so I set out at that point to not only continue to do it, but to use it for exactly that purpose you talked to at the beginning of just opening up and retaining space for all of the things that we're not supposed to talk about, but in an honest environment where it's not, I'm coming to you with all the answers. Um, I just want to have an honest conversation with a level head and talk about the things that we're not supposed to talk about or that we're supposed to onboard without doing our own research. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
I didn't know the full story. We we have a lot of similarities. I, I had a yoga studio in 2020 and we're in Ontario. So same re- relentlessly closed for on and off for 17, 18 months. And it was a no win situation. I, I eventually chose to close in the same way because I found that even when we could open, uh, people were terrified of people. Uh, I was a hands-on expert. My business literally revolved around touching people, getting them close, teaching them how to breathe. Um, and it was a smart move for me to close because that that industry actually never recovered. Um, I have many, many friends with studios who are not doing well or who had to close anyways once they could open up um, because people, again, they were they were afraid of people. People got weird. Gyms were okay because working out is such a slog. I think a lot of people had to go back. Um, but the the endless, endless tyranny, and it was always the people with government jobs, social service jobs who would come to the studio who didn't see any problem with it. And like, well, yeah, you're, you're getting paid. You're, you're getting paid still. I don't know about you. I had no idea how vulnerable I actually was. It took no time at all to drain my bank accounts, no time at all. And then CERB, the little handouts that they would give you, uh, if you were bringing any money in at all, then you couldn't get any government handouts. So what's the point of that? You know, the $2,000 isn't enough to feed your family, pay your rent, keep your business af- afloat and pay your employees. It's, it, it was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It, it was a, a flavor, a taste, an early um, precursor to what we're starting to see starting to be rolled out in Canada now with the idea of UBI, of universal basic income, where if you are relying for your ability to exist in the country on a government stipend, well, I mean, you want to talk about tyrannical overreach. They can do anything they want with you at that point. That's like, I, I talk about socialism sometimes on my podcast and really socialism is like communism light it's like it's the it's the idea that people still have sovereignty but everything is reliant upon the state so they have sovereignty until they don't and the government gets to decide when that is and it really did feel like that with serb and some of those other small business loans i had a friend who had a a gym up um, a little north of mine who took that fifty thousand dollar one-time loan that it turns out um, you can't default on it's like a, a student loan that it will follow you for the rest of the time so you can bankrupt your business and you still have to pay that fifty thousand dollars back and he took that in 2020 when he thought that this was going to be like no more than three months long and he ran out of it in three months because it's expensive but a non-operational uh, business afloat like that and he told me candidly afterwards, uh, a year after that, like, it's the worst mistake I ever made was taking that government money. I wish I would have either not taken it on principle or recognized the downsides before I took it. He thought it was just like the easiest Band-Aid, thank you, daddy government, and then we can get all get past this together. But it turns out that the government had other ideas. They're like, well, we don't like the numbers coming into the fall, so you're still shut down. Uh, pay attention to the news. We'll tell you when you're not. Like, what do you mean? Like, I'm out of money at this point, guys. Is there more money coming? Nope, afraid not. That's what you get. I'm glad that you mentioned socialism because that was um, that was my awakening. You know, at, at first it was just government overreach. And then, of course, it was 
the schmack scene, but very quickly I caught on to the bigger picture political shift. And I remember saying that really early to friends and they just thought I was crazy. I said, no, this, there's something political happening. And Canadians are so confused about what socialism even means. They hold their socialist healthcare so tightly that they think that that's what it means. Canadians think that socialism means free healthcare and that it means you take care of other people. They literally think like that's that's where it ends. And, and I'll always ask people, well, can you name a socialist country? They always name the Netherlands. I'm like, mm-mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have elements of socialism like Canada does, but they're not a socialist nation. China is. China. You would think that they're full communists, but um, it's it's socialism. Yeah, it's much more um, along those lines. And it's interesting because very much the same way, I didn't really understand the nuance of these big overarching governmental and system um, controlling structures like socialism, capitalism, communism, um, all of the things, right? Until it started to become apparent that there's a lot more of a socialist environment I'm living in right now, apparently, because I thought I was living in a democratic um, capitalistic society, but not when the government doesn't want you to, apparently, which is very not capitalistic, not democratic, you know, and I started looking into those types of systems. And exactly to your point, I think that the proper implementation of government involves little elements of a bunch of different things, but they can't be too much of certain things like Socialism could be pepper on your food. You don't want 90% pepper. That's not food anymore. That's a punishment. And it's it's useful in places like publicly funded police, uh, taxes that pave your roads, a fire department when you need it. But if it's like your business and your income and your access to this, that, and the other that might be vital or might be for recreation, but it's, it's all going to be dependent upon the government say-so, I'm sorry, that's too much pepper at that point. You've ruined the whole thing. Yeah. There's been so many moments where I don't understand how people aren't awake at, at this point. You know, in the beginning, totally get it. I wasn't awake in the beginning. It I was really slow out of the gates. I was at home, lockdown, making sourdough, watching Tiger King, you know, when lockdowns were still kind of fun. You're like, well, I guess it's a little forced vacation. I might as well make the most of it. it. It took me a while to get out of the gates. But when Canadians started watching things like uh, peaceful protesters being beaten by police officers with horses, when they saw that bank accounts were being frozen and no one flinched, I think that's a side effect, not only of the propaganda campaign, but um, people are so disconnected they're so disconnected from reality they are stuck in their screens i don't think there's anything that can shock people or wake people up like they're almost zombie like at this point Mm -hmm. i find this often too and it's you know perpetually frustrating when i run into people especially canadians that came through ostensibly the same types of experience that i did But there are so many different degrees of that same experience that so many them, but they just don't understand the same things. They did not learn the same lessons that we did. And so for those people, 
to talk to me as if I'm the crazy one. I'm like, you're actually the dummy in this scenario. And it's almost laughable that you don't recognize that that's the case. You're kind of stuck in this Stockholm syndrome where you think that your oppressor is actually your savior. And meanwhile, the rest of us have not only figured out that's not the case, but we've broken out of the cage that you're pretty happy and say that I'm stupid for doing so. Like there's this weird, um, egotistical kind of uh, narcissistic myopia where they think like everything down the single stretch lane of reality that they exist upon is the truth and the actual reality. And everyone outside that is crazy. I'm like, man, there's so many red flags, even just philosophically about that idea that you really need to work on yourself before you can get to the point that you can accost me with, with ideas or accusations about what I believe. Right. And some convert, most conversations are pretty nuanced, <laughs> but at this point I'm like, go open your door and look outside. Like, just look at the world, look at how people are surviving. Look at how let people trying to pay the bills. Look at yourself, not being able to watch the news on social media platforms. Like just look, um, it's, there's complicated arguments. And then there's this, it's, it's not that hard if you just open your eyes and look outside that we are not doing well. And we keep doubling down on all the things that are making people um, poor and more divided. Um, we're not going in a good direction. And, and that's what I can't stand. People are just clinging to their tribalism for dear life, unwilling to see things another way. And I get it because I was totally there. I didn't used to know a thing about politics. I was a liberal because that's what good people do. And I thought anyone on the right was just uh, an evil Trump supporter and Trump was an evil person, but I didn't really know. I hadn't dove into these concepts at all. I didn't understand politics. Um, so I get why people get stuck here. And it's a problem. I mean, like my, the biggest person I argue with is, is my dad. He's the one, he used to run Manitoba Public Health. Um, so we butted heads on a lot of issues. He, he thinks Canada is the Canada five years ago, 10 years ago. And it's hard for him to see that. Um, and like, I understand that you believed in what you did and maybe things were different back then. And I understand that you hold true to liberal values but it's not the same party. What they're doing isn't working. And that's the biggest thing I wish people could see. Um, it's one thing to want uh, your set of values to play out and for it to work. Like maybe you really believe in liberal values, but the parties themselves have shifted. Classic liberalism no longer exists. It's very far left right now. The right is somewhere in the middle most people are Marxists without knowing it. Um, the NDP used to be about the working man. Jack Layton's NDP was about the working man. Uh, now it's like a globalist elite Marxist organization. And the conservatives are the closest thing to like old school liberalism that I can find these days. Mm -hmm. Isn't that strange how that worked is this shifting sand over time, historically, it's actually fascinating to look back at what the political compass looked like during different time periods, um, what the political compass looked like even during the beginning of the 1900s, um, where 
you know, uh, the first instantiation of communism happened after the First World War. And um, in, in that meantime in between where you had the Great Depression in the U.S. and that build up towards the Nazi Party in the 1930s before the Second World War kicked off, the political compass at that point was so much more different than what it was like 50 to 100 years before that and then like even 30 to 40 years after that whether you look at the hippie revolution or into like the 80s and 90s what classic liberalism was which is a term that you would learn academically from institutions of ivy leagues that go back hundreds of years it didn't apply anymore it was almost like laughably hypocritical to look at what like classic liberalism was and then look at what the liberal parties of the day were throughout the 1900s as things started to shift all over the place but i think that this is a problem with trying to kind of shoehorn a archaic idea onto uh, modernity as it starts to change and find its own identity through cultural shifts. And I mean, especially with the revolution of technology, the connecting of disparate ideas and groups of people really started to present different emergent styles of thinking that then changed the zeitgeist, the cultural um, projection of a people, I think much faster and maybe faster than anybody was ready for where we were kind of caught in the whiplash trying to keep keep up to that where nowadays you it's the the left that are warmongers in some instances it which makes absolutely no sense if you were to look even like 30 40 years ago no sense whatsoever um and i mean you can go down the list of what what it then expect the right which was typically like the hyper conservative and nationalist uh nationalistic ideas well, I always get a kick out of the the far left with their Antifa gear. Um, Antifa is the one that is begging for more government overreach. They want the government to control all of our institutions and tell people what to think, say, and believe. I'm like, y'all the fascists, you need mm. to look up that word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so funny. That's exactly exactly the point that I'm making here is that inversion of values. But what's strange is that Either they don't realize that it's happened or we're the ones being fooled because they've flipped the script on what their terminology means. And we think they're playing by classic liberalism when they know they're actually playing by more of like a neo-Marxist thing where it's basically term warfare, where they've redefined what the terms mean. And yeah, what we see as clearly fascist, they go out as like unironically saying that they're anti-fascist when they're actually propping up the fascism of whether it's the pharmaceutical companies and the governments or what have you, you know, um, media and the government, all of this collusion, which is what fascism is. It's corporatism. It's the connection. It's the, the fascist binding between corporate and state. And there's so many more examples of where the left not only reinforces that, but their values align more um, across the board with that, certainly at the far left side. I don't want to broad brush everybody, but the problem is that the left, I think, much more than the right at this point has shifted further towards their extremes, which sucks for the political compass. But to be honest, it's something I think that we can rally and and recover from. Whereas it, historically, if the right is the one that goes too far to the extremes, then things get much more dystopian, much more violent. And like, I'm not going to um, say that communism, which would be considered far, far, far left, 
isn't as bad or worse as fascism, but it's it's more insidious. I'll say it that way. They play these mind games of empathy to try to lead people into these dialectical traps that end up basically shooting themselves in the foot. Whereas the fascists, the actual fascists, the Hitler and the Nazis and those will just straight up come out and execute people. Um, I don't know really which under which regime is worse to exist in. Probably neither is a good idea. So maybe we should stop doing the whole extreme thing on either side of that end. I mean, I, I think it's the same. Like when I started listening to James Lindsay and New Discourses, like that was one of the first podcasts that I started listening to way back in 2020. Mm. And I started diving into all sorts of communist literature and and reading uh, like reading about 1940s more, but then also reading about the, the Chinese Red Guard, reading about Stalin, reading all sorts of history books about communist nations and millions of people died under communist regimes. They were starved to death, um, always led by a propaganda campaign, I guess, similar to the right. Um, it is dangerous. And that's not something we're ever taught in school. We're, we weren't taught about the millions of people that were starved to death under these regimes. It's always painted as a utopia and it's never succeeded once in history, yet the very arrogant youth who think communism is a good idea right now keep cheering it on because this time, this time it would work. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's to say it's nearsighted or ignorant isn't even to scratch the surface on that one. They're playing with a nuclear bomb that we've seen go off. And to speak to your point, has caused more human suffering and death than any other thing in the last hundred years by orders of magnitude. Just on the, the Russian side, you could equate communism or its derivative effects to anywhere from 60 to 100 million deaths in that country and the, you know, the, the parts of the USSR that they were attached to during the time. If you were to look at Maoist China through the Great Leap Forward and the, the Cultural Revolution, you're talking somewhere... And you know what's kind of morbidly, morosely humorous about this is they still argue. There's still re revisionist historians who argue about the total amount of millions of people that starved and were murdered under Mao's regime in such broad strokes that they obviously either aren't paying attention or they're deliberately trying to underplay the, the dangerousness of it. Well, they say 13 million, maybe 15 million died. It's like actually like some of the upper end um, estimations are between one and 200 million people. Like how can you underestimate so low if either you're not that good at your job or you're doing it on purpose? Because I think most people who are being honest will say that it's roughly between 60 to 100 million that we can prove. But here's the problem is when you're dealing with that many millions of people throughout such a large country with no real good record keeping during a time where they don't want to keep those records because they want it to look like it's not killing their people. Like, yeah, there's hundreds of millions of deaths in the last century that are directly attributed to this thing. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn and Solzhenitsyn was a soldier for the Red Army during the Second World War. He had seen the front lines of the Russian War, but then also, and more to the point, he had lived through the cultural engineering of what communism did to the Russian state and the people beneath it, where he ended up getting thrown in the gulag like most people did for basically thought crimes uh, at some point along the way. 
And two points about that, I think, are very, very good caution. That if he had known, if he had known leading up to it when people were like, it's wealthy and well it's like there's no way our society would ever do something like that and we're living in this utopia we're just around the corner from so put your nose to the grindstone comrade and if if he said if he knew where it was going to end up by the time he finally got out of the gulags back before that happened he would stand at the top of the highest hilltop and and yell from the top of his lungs all day long but he said that people would not believe him even if he knew where it went, people would not believe him. And he knows that that's the case because when he got out of the Gulag, and if you look at the story of how he even wrote the Gulag Archipelago, it's absolutely harrowing and, and blows, I think, just the idea of how to write a book out of out of the water. He had to memorize it because he wasn't allowed to write it down while he was in the Gulag. And then he wrote it back down by memory. Thousands of pages. <laughs> it's, it's remarkable what he did to make sure that this could be aired to the public because the, the communist co uh, country he was existing in didn't want him to and actively tried to stop this from being published. But even after it did get published, there were academics in Russia and around Europe who said that it was not that bad, that he's blowing it out of proportions, that he's being hyperbolic. When there, there were first person stories that it's like, who knows better than me what happened to me and the people around me? You, you academics who think that uh, this is all... You know, it just wasn't done right, and we'll get it better the next time. It's not as bad as they're saying. Those are all just folk tales. It's like you never lived through what I lived through, and I see so much of the same gaslighting going on in the society that we live in today, where people downplay. They're like that frog in the boiling water, where it's just warm right now, but we start to see bubbles coming up around the edge of the water, and they're not raising any panic alarms because the water's always been warm. Why would you worry, right? And they'll be the ones that sit there until it boils, and at that point, I'm sorry, it's too late. Well, and I think it's because they have us obsessed with all these things that don't matter. They have people, everyone's eyes are on microaggressions. So they don't even have a second to think about these bigger picture things. Like, I, I don't know about you, I never watch mainstream media, but if I'm in a hotel or traveling, I might flip it on. And I only ever hear anti-racism, um, pro-trans things, or basically go get vaccinated, uh, just like on repeat, these three messages and not on oh, climate change, hmm. nothing else, nothing else in the news. And the, the brainwashing is strong. If that's all you hear, and a lot of people flip on the news all day long, imagine only getting those four messages all day long. That's all that people can see. They have their eyes on the wrong problems. And I think about that all the time, especially as we have like real serious basic needs issues right now. We're in a basic needs crisis in Canada, um, food, money, water, <laughs> all those things. People can't afford a home. They can barely afford groceries. Why are we focused on pronouns and obsessing about these smaller issues? Or we have a, a huge war bubbling up. Why are we focused on giving um, 75,000 for sex change surgeries. Like, do, are people not in reality anymore? Why are we mm -hmm. focused on these products? the media, the media, uh, Netflix, movies? It's just one message again and again. Yep. Yep. The narrative is strong and its effects are incredible. There is um, 
the minister of propaganda, which was an actual thing during the Second World War um, on the Nazi side, the guy who wrote the book ab about how to do propaganda on people, his name was Joseph Goebbels. And he was um, famously quoted saying, if you say something loud enough and long enough, the people will believe it. And you see so much of that reiteration and this rhetoric that comes from the narrative drivers. And you wonder why they don't want us speaking out and breaking their narrative, because it's a very tedious and fragilely built system that the truth absolutely smashes they can't let the truth anywhere near their apparatus because it's it stands upon all of these half truths and lies of omission that if you start to poke holes in that the structure gets very teetery very fast and i think what we're seeing in so many different ways is the reaction of whatever the machine is that builds these narratives for whatever the purpose is in the grander scheme of things they are reactionary at this point where they see the damage that was caused to their great reset that they wanted to run during COVID. And it didn't work because people were able to talk openly like we're doing right now. And there's a reason why, not just in Canada, but certainly in Canada, there is an effort to censor free speech and public speech, certainly on large platforms. We saw that with the Twitter files. Everybody knew it with YouTube and Facebook, all the meta platforms. But now with Bill C-11, they're starting to roll out censorship of podcasts specifically. Well, we'll call it um, registration right now of podcasts, but it's going to lead the same thing that they did with C-18, where uh, it looks ostensibly like they're doing a good deed for society when really it just so happened to end up that we get um, everybody censored except for the government-funded media. Whoops, sorry that that worked out the way it is. But anyways, they're the only news anyways that you want to get. And all this dangerous dis and misinformation that we saved you from, you're better off without anyone. That's right. Yeah, and because the messaging is strong, um, while we're doing this for equity, we're doing this to protect trans people, we're doing this to uh, fight climate change, who knows what the narrative is that they're going to throw in, in in terms of uh, protecting people from podcasting. Um, but as long as they touch on those points, people will they'll fall in line. You know, when they it's bad enough that they're going for podcasts, but when I saw that they're going after even Netflix, that painted a very dystopian 1984 um, scene for me. So now we're only gonna see government approved television shows, just praising Justin Castro and, and the regime. That's what we get to watch at home. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, if you want to, we live in a very interesting world in that not everybody, this isn't a one world government and we can look at a whole bunch of different governments and different countries that are trying different things at exactly the modern times now where it's not the same but you can look in the modern times we live in right now and if you want a a picture into the future of what it looks like maybe 10 to 20 steps past where canada's at right now you can look at china and go over to china where they have their own internet the world i've heard those stories before where uh even non-Chinese nationals that are coming in for school, they use a VPN and they end up having a knock on the door at 2 a.m. and they never get seen again. Um, that's the country and the direction of countries that are leading towards government control of information. For your safety, citizen, you're not going to be able to anymore see things from these dangerous dis and misinformation nodes out of Australia and out of uh the UK and out of the US and only the good and vetted community of Canadian uh, researchers and broadcasters are going to bring you the truth 
from day to day. And this is like, just switch the word from Canada to China and you'll see what's going on. It's actually not confusing when you take yourself out of your own little boiling pot. And if you want to see a prospectus on what this looks like 40 steps down the way, move from China and go look at South Korea. They don't have any media. They're not allowed any media. They're not even allowed to watch movies. They have to be smuggled in by the black market across the border on little flash drives that can get their whole families executed. Like this, this doesn't, this isn't something that's from 1984. This is something happening right now on planet earth, just like a few thousand miles away from where you're sitting. And people will say, well, that could never happen here. Well, why did it happen over there? Right. I mean, in a world that's obsessed with talking about privilege, why won't anyone address their Western privilege? Thinking, oh, well, those bad things only happen um, in Asia. They would never yeah. happen here. Oh, that's the, that's the problem, though, is it's there's a term that C.S. Lewis coined called uh, chronological snobbery. And I love that term because it speaks to the idea that because we're the most modern humans that have existed so far, we're the best humans and everybody else was dumb and, and uh, ignorant before us. And we're so smart because they made all the mistakes till the point that now we're perfect. And it's such a a flawed point of view, but I think it's a natural point of view. The more that you learn about the world that you live in, it's like, well, this is so great. So therefore, it's always going to be great. Every great empire has fallen. There isn't an empire that exists today that existed thousands of years ago. So what happened to them? Well, they were just so dumb. No, they weren't. Actually, a lot of the great ideas that we exist on right now in the Western world were predicated upon those fallen empires. So what makes us so impermeable right now? And I would say that we're in a worse situation because of things like the Internet and the censoring of speech and the the echo chambers and all of the distortion of reality. Now we got to worry about AIs and bots and things that we like, we have a real hard time even telling what is real, let alone to tell like what to do about it. The, the, the definition of wisdom is basically having accurate discernment and nobody can discern anything accurately in real time anymore, which makes it so, so difficult and dangerous to live in actual truth and reality where if you're trying to get your news from all of these places that are so hyper uh censored for the sake of the narrative dot tm du jour you know copyrighted by the government this is the only narrative that's real why is it so different from country to country that the, this is what's real and why is it all the countries are trying to make sure that their edifice that they've built into this narrative is protected against uh, any sort of a costman at all costs I don't think it's because they're the good guys. Like you can't find a good historian who will tell you that the book burners were always the good guys. That's right. And this is where people are really short-sighted. Um, you may agree with the team that happens to have the power right now. And you're like, oh, who cares? I want them to have that power because that's the team I support. Well, what would happen later if say our elections made uh, the conservatives in charge and now the conservatives have that same power. Do you still like the system then? Would you like the right being able to censor anything that you see, hear, or watch on TV? Oh, no, that makes you uncomfortable. If that makes you uncomfortable, then you shouldn't like the system. <laughs> then the system needs to go. Where does this lead to? And that's what no one's like, things are so tribal that people just want to win. They just want their side to win that they can't even see a year into the future, let alone five years from now, 10 years from now, like Canadians wake up, you, you can't see the news. 
And then Justin Trudeau lied and blamed it on Meta. He said it was mm -hmm. Facebook's fault that you can't see the news. Wake up. Yeah. I, you know, speaking of like getting out of your own boiling pot to see what's actually going on or to see how far you've come. Um, I put some stories up on my podcast Instagram page that were uh, kind of hilarious because I was talking about C11 that's like the day that it got announced on that Friday that Justin dropped this thing before a long weekend saying, oh, by the way, we're going to regulate podcasts. Goodbye. See you next uh, Tuesday. And everyone's freaking out at that point. I put up a story saying, well, this is happening in Canada right now. They've just announced that through the power of Bill C-11, the, basically the online Internet censorship law, if you want to use the colloquial term, um, they're going to come after podcasts first thing. And I went to go put a link on my story. And I couldn't put a link because of C-18. So we're actually like two steps down the tube of censorship online. And when I did that, I screen capped where it said, due to regulations in Canada, you can no longer uh, post news links in stories anymore. And I took a screen cap of that and put it on its own story saying, well, look at this. I tried to put an article to prove that C-11 is being used this way, and it won't even let me put that because of C-18. And then there was a podcaster that I know down in Australia that saw my stories, and he's like, bro. Is that real? Is that happening? And he made like this viral reel that went crazy on TikTok and Instagram. And, and everybody outside of Canada was like, holy crap, they're that far and nobody is freaking out in Canada. Yep. The problem is so many people don't even know how far they're in it right now. Like I was talking about the lead up to the implementation of C-11 before it ever got ratified for it took a year to go through the, the courts and the um the Congress back and forth before it finally got to a point that they ratified it. And I was talking about all the way leading up to that. And then when they started doing the C-18 thing, I said, they're going to, you know, not allow us to see news anymore before it ever happened. And I'll still today get people that I know that aren't hermits that just, they send me a screen caps like, Drew, did you know about this? And it'll say the same thing due to meta, due to Canadian politics, due to restrictions. You can't. I'm like, yeah, I've been saying that for like a year at this point. Like, how is it that this has been going on for like six months at this point? You couldn't post links and you're just figuring this out. Like, this is the type of a sleep that our country is in right now that like, again, to speak to Solzhenitsyn, we need to get up on the hilltop and just start screaming at some point. But that's what they're trying to prevent. They're trying to prevent people from even knowing how far it's gone and how hot the pot is getting. I don't know about you, but do you ever question if what you're doing is safe anymore? Like, do you get to that point? Like, I've definitely got to that point a few times. And I'm just like, I, I just got to keep doing it. But, mm -hmm. you know, I, I work for the documentary team that went down um, to Ottawa. And I, during that time period, I was waiting for my bank account to be frozen. I, I know that kind of fear. I'm probably on a watch list. Um, definitely just for Instagram content and the, the things that have gotten taken down from YouTube. I'm, I'm sure I am. Do you ever wonder if it's actually not safe? Because I, I kind of feel like that's where we're at, but also... Um, I've personally committed to talking about this more than I ever have before, and I would love to encourage more people if they've been thinking about starting a podcast, I'm like, do it. Um, there, I just don't see another way through, you know, like, even if mm -hmm. it is dangerous, I think we need more of us willing to start 
yabbering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it absolutely is dangerous. We're at the point right now where the danger is only implied and it hasn't really been, there's no teeth behind it yet. At least the teeth, if they're there, they haven't been used in a public way. I don't think we're more than a couple steps away from that. And yeah, to speak to your point, I am concerned about that, but it's, it's not a concern that I haven't considered for a long time. My wife, again, angel that she is, brings it up every time, like some of this stuff comes up, like, should you still be doing this, Drew? Like, this is, this is getting really scary. Here at one time or brought in front of a human rights tribunal of some sort and and get railroaded by some woke judge to be made an example of as a head on a pike. And meanwhile, I got four kids that suddenly don't have a dad anymore. And I've literally wrestled with that idea. I don't know how many nights it keeps me awake, but I keep coming back to people like Solzhenitsyn, where if it weren't for us, who would be even trying to stop it? It would only happen faster. I think that not only... Do we need to continue even in spite of the danger, but that we're one of the last bastions, one of the last breakpoints, one of the last firewalls that prevents this railroading of society in general. And even if we're not seen in our time for the worth of what we're doing, and maybe it takes to the point that we're behind bars for however long that happens, we need to be preemptive in that case because because it will happen faster if we aren't here is my opinion so for that reason i'm not only willing to take that risk but i consider it's my duty to take that risk because there's just not enough people doing it yeah i i think that's a good point the the consequences of not doing it are um you're going to be in worse danger Yes. You know, when I when I first started speaking out, I lost everything, every Instagram follower, client, friend, like literally everything. But I remember at that time thinking, um, I'm not going to have a business anyways, if this is the direction that we're heading, there's there's nothing actually to protect. And nothing, while I do think we all have our unique role in this, I don't think everyone's meant to have a podcast or be a loudmouth on Instagram. I don't think that. And I think also, we're not meant to speak on every single issue possible. Like we we have a lane. However, there are a lot of people that are so against what happened in health, but continue to give people injections in the hospital. There are so many teachers that are against the gender ideology and they're continuing to teach it. I have a big problem with that because integrity is one of my principal values and yes they have a job and a family to support but so did you and i and mm -hmm. we lost it and we figured it out and i know a lot of people who did the same and i'm not saying it's easy but you know i, I like to know that there are awake people in all these systems awake people in government and in the schools but my hope is that you are doing something strategic behind the scenes you know, you don't have to be loud on Instagram, but you better be doing something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take that aggregate effort. It's not going to be a one person thing. It's not going to be a hundred person thing. It's going to have to be a community thing where there was, there was a concept that got popularized during the pandemic. Um, it started from a psychiatrist or psychologist really um, named Matthias Desmet. And I think he was a Belgian um, 
psychologist, and he came up with a term that he defined as mass formation, that more colloquially people started calling it mass formation psychosis. And his framework for how this works, it'll sound very familiar to people who live through the pandemic, is on any issue that has diametric poles, there's going to be 30% of a given population that are for a thing. They're the zealots for the thing, whether it's masks or vaccines or lockdowns or whatever it is, save grandma for forever and just, you know, keep on more masks, backs, all this stuff. They're the maximalists. They're the berserkers. There's always going to be 30% is his estimation. And he said, um, you know, by rule of balance, there's going to be 30% that oppose not only what they stand for, the, that original 30%, but oppose the implementation that the 30 is trying to force upon everybody else because that's what berserkers do. So it's going to be a 30-30 in any given population. But the real, real crux of the matter is there's going to be 40% remaining population in the middle that are the moderates that don't care or don't know or just too lazy or don't speak up or whatever they are. They add no effect to one side or the other of the aisle. Now, what happens with mass formation is the goal of either of those 30% is to bring the moderates onto their side to build a mass because if they can get the majority of that 40%, say they get it all by carrot and by stick over 17 months of overreach that's infringed on charter rights where you would either lose your job or you would get a burger or whatever it was to get you to do the current thing. And they, they drew the majority of that 40% towards the 30% that was always going to help push that. Now you've got a mass of 70 versus 30. And at that point, the people who whip up the, the frenzy to cause that mass, that mass psychosis, they use that 70% as a bludgeon against the 30 because they can do anything they want in, in any sort of kind of quasi-democratic method of, look, this, the majority of people are right. We're going to use consensus science and we're going to talk about the experts and those people who talk against the experts, well, they're quacks and kooks because they're part of that 30% that are trying to kill us 70% that are in the right. And whatever the propaganda that leads to the point that you bring in and whip up a mass, historically, you can see this all throughout history, that this psychosis, this psychology exists in people in general. And I equate it to um, grasshoppers. So if you know much about insects, certainly when it comes to agriculture, there's this thing that happens with, I think it's six or eight different specific species of grasshopper where they can go through a morphological change due to environmental impacts or pressures upon them that literally changes them into basically a different creature. They molt and increase their body mass by 50% and they become a locust. And a locust is very different than a grasshopper. Grasshoppers by nature are solitary insects. They don't hop around in groups they stick to themselves and they eat their own little leaves but when members of any of these six to eight different species of grasshopper are in a um, morphologically into locusts and they all become locusts at that point where, where they're just mindless creatures that are like a single solitary mass of just consume 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 that's their only driving metric is consume and it destroys nations worth of agriculture there's stories in africa of swarms of locusts so big that you can see them coming from the horizon like black clouds and you know that by the time they get there there's nothing you can do all of your crops are destroyed maybe your house is destroyed like plagues of locusts are a very real thing but to speak to the meta of this analogy back to humans 
I think that we psychologically become a different thing when we become a mass, when we're no longer individuals and solitary sovereign people that are looking out for our best interests, but we have to look out for the communal interests. At that point, we lose our identity, whether this is communism, where there is no identity, we're all comrades that are doing the, the same work for the sake of the system and nobody gets a leg up because that would be anti-communistic, um, or whether this is just a psychological trick where it's the madness of crowds during a riot or during a protest where everybody is doing things they would never do as individuals. But as this unit, they all start acting out of pocket in ways that they wouldn't otherwise. And that, I think, is exactly a the analogy to use of what happened not only during COVID, certainly over COVID, but the the use case of why totalitarians use that psychology against us. They whip us up through all sorts of propaganda and fear porn to play on our, our lizard brains, our uh, amygdala, to get that amygdalic response of either fight or flight. And if you always keep people in fight and flight, they're looking for a safety raft. And if the government's the only one throwing the safety wrap, they'll reel them into their 30% and start growing that mass to the point that they can implement totalitarianism upon a mass. Um, the best, I think, playbook for this was something that was written after the Second World War by a Jewish lady by the name of Hannah Arendt. And she wrote the, the I mean, magnum opus of totalitarianism called A History of Totalitarianism. And it's extremely dense and it's very historically... Um, wrought with examples of not only what she lived through, but the psychology and the politics of how this works. And it's exactly that. The idea is to break people into little pods so that they can't interact with each other, um, scare them all so that they come to big daddy government to save them. And at that point, the government can do whatever they want for whatever dictatorial and totalitarian reasons they want to. And dysregulate and disrupt them at their core of who they are, which is the goal of Marxism. Uh, this is why we're seeing this breakdown of the family. This is why we're seeing um, people changing their gender at an yep. exceptional rate. Um, they're, they're making people unstable, financially unstable, chemically unstable, uh, you know, add, throw in pharmaceuticals and AI and all these things on top of everything. People are not well right now and when people are not doing well they're looking for someone to take care of them and my tinfoily brain is looking at that big scenario that that's the game plan they don't actually want anyone doing well they want you weak and sick and confused about very basic things you're very easy to control then mm -hmm. yeah that's a very i think direct and easy to understand recipe for what we're seeing at the meta level. And unfortunately, that's, I think, where we have, there's kind of two safe places to exist, I think, psychologically today. It's either looking at the big meta picture in these big broad strokes that make sense at the level that we're kind of stuck at, um, or to actually go inward. And a lot of people I find right now are going inward instead of dealing or trying to uh, navigate outwardly, which is so difficult in such confusing and dangerous and strange times. So what they are doing, I think, are, are actually, there is a groundswell of spirituality and people finding comfort in rediscovering their existence and their connection to the ethereal, to the universe, to God, and finding something whole within them instead of rallying and, and screaming at people to try to figure out something whole outside of them. And I think that maybe that might be, 
that might be the actual linchpin to this whole thing is instead of trying to architect something to beat the system, we need to turn inwards and in the words of Socrates, know thyself. And at that point, we're not when the questions come up, is this dangerous to do what we're doing? We're not going to have a second guess. There's not going to be any, um, should I stop doing what I'm doing because it's dangerous? Because you know who you are at that point. It's never even an argument or, or a concession. It's, I know what I am. I know who I am. I know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And so therefore, yes, it's dangerous, but so what? I know what I am. I trust in things higher, stronger, more important than than the government and the world and politics around us. And I really do feel like there is this new spiritual awakening that's happening in the mass of culture in general. And maybe that's the thing that we've been missing through most of the 19th century since Nietzsche killed God. Uh, you're speaking my language. You are. And, and that's what this is why I like I would say I'm doing well. I am doing well. I am steady. I'm I'm not scared. I'm I'm able to focus on my work and I don't get tanked or black pilled by the world. Um, cause that was, that was my real awakening in 2021. I started getting really close with God and all of a sudden everyone around me, just like pegs going off, like boom, boom, boom. All these people, all of a sudden are talking about God. All these people are going to church. Um, our, our church here used to be dead. No one was there. It's busting at the seams and the people in there, they're not scared. They're not there because they're scared, because that's what people always say, right? When you start leaning on, oh, well, it makes sense when you're scared. People cling to that. Those people are real happy right now. Um, and that gives me a lot of hope. So I'm really glad that you touched on that, because I think the more of us that can get out of the propaganda and away from the screens and you're able just to spend some time with yourself and be aware, people are starting to feel and experience something different and it's pointing them in the direction of what to do, what to say. Um, one shift for me, and maybe you can relate is I've gotten a lot more careful with my words, not because I'm self-censoring, not because I'm afraid, but I'm feeling this pull that I need to be building bridges more than adding to the divide. So I'm still shining a light on all the issues, but I was pretty mean before. <laughs> My memes were getting real mean and uh, I, I'm softening a bit. And I really saw that with like the Million March, for example. Um, what I saw was one big powerful movement on one side of the street and an equally powerful movement on the other side of the street. And I just thought, oh, we're in trouble because each side is trying to get bigger and louder. And it's like, we're watching two different TV shows and arguing about what the show is about. Like we can't fix things from this place. There has to be a different way. And maybe that's the, the connection piece that you're, you're speaking to connected to ourselves, to spirit, but also to other people, even the ones that we don't agree with right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I brought up this idea in my first book. I'm actually in the middle of writing my second right now that he talks a little bit about the same thing. And it's the idea of kind of the direction of effect as a human living on planet earth is you unfortunately don't really get to live outside of yourself. Everything is a first person's perspective, which means everything is subjective, which then makes it just incredibly important that you know who you are 
firstly, foundationally. And then interestingly, that tends to matriculate out and people start seeing the difference and the change in you and starting to emulate that because they see the benefit of it. And people are social people and they start talking and interacting along the same message and they start congealing into something that's a grassroots movement that moves from the bottom up in a society and is so much more powerful and so much more natural than everything we see being pressed from the top down. Where if you invert that, where you look at, instead of starting with the individual, you start with the communal at the level of a nation of millions of people and start trying to make decisions and implementations from there down. To even be able to do that is a synthetic move because there's a saying in politics is that politics is downstream of culture, which means that culture actually gives politics the ability to do the things that it does. And political parties and uh, politicians themselves understand that very well because they know, and this is their conclusion that they come to, at their level, at the communal level, that means that they have to engineer culture. If they can engineer culture synthetically, well, then they can get the same effect as a grassroots movement without having to start from the grassroots and they can push that effect from the top down onto us. But the problem with that is that isn't actually the way that these systems work. It's not natural and it's only going to be for a time. It's like holding a beach ball underwater. You can do that for a certain amount of time, but the moment it slips, the wave comes along or pressures change, it's going to pop up through the surface faster than you can contain it because it's not natural and it's more naturally inclined to go in a different direction. And I believe that what we're seeing now, what we're living through now after the the pressure cooker that we were under during COVID and all of the totalitarianism that happened through countries all throughout the world on all sorts of different people for essentially the same reason, we, one of the natural knock-on effects of that is we have adjusted ourselves to start living more intentionally, more sovereignly, because that is the natural reaction to synthetic um, pressures from the top down. And I think the grass is growing very strong right now. And this is the, the breakwater again, the stalwart that's going to stop this type of totalitarianism from happening in the future. And I'm seeing a lot of implementations of that right now where they're not getting even two steps down that path before they're seeing significant pushback. And we didn't see that in COVID. If it happened, um, it wasn't strong enough. What we're seeing now is maybe 10 times what we saw back then. And people, even under the auspice of being censored and possibly put on a list and being criminalized in the future, they we walk right through it because we're not going to be cowardly anymore. We're not going to be kowtowed by those threats anymore because we know that we have got the, the power of truth behind us. And that's something that St. Augustine said, one of my favorite quotes, he said, the truth is a lion. You don't need to protect it. Just let it free. And it'll protect itself. So well said, my friend. I mean, at this point, I think even the sleepy people would snap and not take it. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's great. That means that we're getting more of that 40% moderate, which then becomes impossible for the, the crazies on one side to uh, seed their effect into culture. They're the minority. They're the fringe minority at that point. Yeah. Um, tell me, what's your plan? What's your plan for the podcast with you and your family traveling around? Is there a plan? Are you kind of going with the flow? Um, what What are your next steps? Well, because of the amount of time that I had to play that magic trick 
trick and and it really it's its own skill set to try to magic hat money out of thin air when you need it most you know like um necessity is the mother of all invention um i learned a very valuable skill set that's that has benefited me and really skated us by for as long as we've been doing this so far but i feel like that the rhythm of the waves we're going to try to find a place to set down and we're looking at of all places believe it or not the place that we fled we're looking at finding some roots in alberta and picking up some land and doing the sustainability thing with our own food and our own water and our own security and starting again with sovereignty in mind at the grassroots level and protecting ourselves even if it's in the country that abused us to begin with, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like we're coming back from this massive odyssey, this Homer's odyssey journey of across stormy seas to come back to where we ported from to begin with, but stronger than when we left it. So the plan is to set down roots back in Alberta, hopefully within the next year, um, you know, uh, depending to, on a whole lot of other variables that we're working on, but that's, that's the goal right now. Okay. Um, you and I might need to talk about Kenora. I think you guys would dig it. We're in Ontario, but like the cool part of Ontario where it's just a bunch of rednecks and hunters. And um, that's what we did. We just focused on how do we become more free? Um, I think you're right. Like the the nomadic life is, is good for a period of time, but with kids, it's, it is good to have stability. And you know what? Nothing makes you feel more powerful than setting yourself up to live free in all ways. You know, we have five freezers of moose meat right now. Um, I work from home. Uh, I talk a ton about like silver and gold and money outside of the system. Um, when you set yourself up in that way, you start to feel uh, that much more emboldened, right? It just makes you even louder. Uh, I lost you for the last bit there. Oh, just saying when... Um, setting yourself up to live sovereign and free in all ways it only makes you that much more courageous right mm -hmm. you have sovereign money when you know how to feed yourself when you have land when you have skills um you're in a really good place to fight this thing mm -hmm. and again if we were to look at history this is it's a proven case study well, the sovereignty of the nation on planet earth and it's the one that those totalitarians are always trying to break down that's the hardest one to assail it's because there's so much freedom and liberty built right into the system that it it again i think resonates with what is natural to to humankind is we should be able to take care of ourselves at all levels of society and the more that the higher levels start pushing against that at the lower levels, well, maybe they don't matter as much anymore. And we're going to, you know, rise up and take care of ourselves anyways. And that is the the solution. That's the antidote to the problem. I agree. Well, friends, if you're not already uh, listening to the social disorder podcast, you're in for a treat. Um, it's definitely one that you're going to want to follow closely. Um, Drew, can you tell us about um, more about your book that's coming up? Yeah. So I've got one available right now that's been out since last year. And first of all, I I never considered myself an author. It's something completely out of character for me to do something like this. I never thought I would ever write one book. And then after I wrote one, I never thought I would write another one. Um, the first one's available right now called Consciousness, Reality, and Purpose. It's more of an exploratory look at those three major topics. And the one that I'm working on now 
which I'm about 80% done. Did you lose me there? I did. Okay. <laughs> where did I cut out? Um, I said, come over to the podcast and then tell us about your book, but then you were gone. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's an easy one to start from then. <laughs> so I've got one book available right now called Consciousness, Reality, and Purpose. And it was something that was a culmination of all the podcasts that had led up to that point. All these big thoughts were kind of playing and dancing in my brain and creating all of these ideas that were really like its own journey. It was its own adventure. And the whole idea of that book is an exploratory look at all three of those major topics, consciousness, reality, and purpose. And I went through nine chapters in each of them on each of them. And that's a good place to start. But the book I'm writing right now is if the first one was exploratory, this one is explanatory, which is much more difficult. This is actually going to be a, a first time announcing it on a podcast, the actual name of it. It's called Layers of Truth. meaning that I came to them myself. I don't know if I'm the only person who's thought this way, but it's a construct that helps me navigate something that is extremely difficult to navigate. And it has everything to do with consciousness and reality and purpose. But in a world where, again, we are our own first person player in an objective world, which means that we're doing everything from a subjective position, which means that our perspective on what's real actually affects what is real as far as we know it. And so in that environment, how do we know what is real, what is true? And it's a very difficult question to try to answer. But if you start from the presumption that there is a total truth out there, and that is the, the position that I take at the beginning of this book, there is a total truth, then what we need to do is First of all, through humility, recognize where we exist in that and is then too where we make mistakes by believing that we are the arbiters of truth or that we can prescribe truth that doesn't actually fit on objective reality. Speaking my language, I can't wait to dig in. Guys, I will make sure that I link um, Drew's books as well as his podcast in the show notes um, so that you can head over that way. Um, Drew, I feel like we could easily go, I hear, I'm sure you hear this a lot, Joe Rogan style. Um, there was so many issues that I could have brought us to today. We're going to have to say, I'll just have to bring you back on. I guess we'll just have to bring you back on. <laughs> yeah. I would love to come back on. We'll get you on my show too. I think we should do the, the pod swap thing. I would love to. Yeah. I'm dedicated to being a loud mouth as much as possible until November 28th and, and onwards. All right, let's do it. Let's make it happen. Awesome, Drew. Thanks for coming on the show. I hope you really liked today's episode. Uh, I love talking to Drew. We'll definitely have to bring him back. Um, this could have easily been a four or five hour podcast. Um, I just want to pick Drew's brain. He he knows so much about history, um, so much about you know AI and governmental systems, financial systems. Like there there's so many places that we could have taken this conversation, but I I know not everybody's up for a four or five hour podcast, so we'll have to have a round two. Uh, if you guys like what we're doing over here on Sense Making, please hit the subscribe button. 
and share this episode to your Instagram stories. It helps us a ton, especially with these creeping totalitarian rules around the corner with Bill C-11. The more we can spread this type of knowledge around, uh, a reminder that November 28th is the day when supposedly uh, they're going to come down hard. Uh, on all the independent podcasts. So the more we can share the stuff around the better. Um, so much appreciated if you're, if you're feeling stuck and not sure what to do. Um, knowledge, knowledge is power. My friends make sure as many Canadian people know that we are fighting for democracy right now. We're fighting for free speech. This kind of scary what's going on. Very real. Um, but let's take our power back by getting bigger louder, stronger. Thanks for listening, friends. I can't wait to show you next week's episode. Uh, Stay tuned. I got lots and lots of shows coming for you here soon. See you next time.